Our reading is Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence, or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are God my Saviour. And my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem, Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous, in burnt offerings offered whole. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Well, good morning. Um, As Dave said, my name is Ailey Proudfoot, and you'll usually find me at the 11 a.m. service with my husband Andy, trying to corral our two children, usually quite unsuccessfully. So it's uh, always a treat for me to come along to the 9 a.m. Psalm 51 that we're looking at this morning has the theme of repentance. And before we begin this morning, I'll probably start with a slight confession. Uh, When Dave, or sometimes Libby or Paul, at the 11 o'clock, they sometimes ask us to talk to our neighbor about a time when or something that we've been thinking recently. And uh, while this is really good, I don't really like it. Um, I'm from the Highlands, and we don't really do that in the Highlands. (laughs) So I find it really challenging to speak to the person next to me about random things or even about how good God is. So I'm not going to make you do that this morning, although let me stress, I'm not criticizing. That's a very good thing that you ask us to do. Um, I'm going to ask us all to recall to mind maybe a time when we've been found out, a time when we've been caught. Um, For me, I'm the daughter of a detective, and that has implications for a girl growing up. Uh, Friends are nervous to come to the house 
uh, for fear of the lie detector they think that your dad keeps in your fictitious basement. Um, and it also means that any plans of mischief are intercepted by the man who's two steps ahead. A series of incriminating questions, uh, the eye contact, and that sinking feeling in my stomach that I've been found out. Dad's caught me again. Um, and this is where we start uh, with Psalm 51. This is where we find David. He's been found out. And uh, Psalm 51 is one of those psalms that we can be pretty certain uh, what it's written about. Our Bibles tell us that we have here um, at the top. It says, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. This story is detailed in 2 Samuel 12, and we'll be flipping back and forth there this morning. So if you want to put a finger in 2 Samuel 12, it's on page 315 in your Bibles there. So uh, one commentator says of these chapters, no Bible story describes the heart's convicting quite like 2 Samuel 12, and no Bible prayer expresses the lips confessing like Psalm 51. I'm sure we're all familiar with the story of David and Bathsheba, but in case it's new to us or in case the details are hazy, I'll give us a quick overview. David was the king of Israel, and he was deemed to be a great king. He'd already been a very faithful shepherd. He was writing some wonderful psalms. He was a valiant warrior, and now he was a great leader of people. Back in 1 Samuel, he's even said to be a man after God's own heart which is quite an accolade. In, first, in, sorry, in 2 Samuel 11, we see the background to this story. So David is on the roof of his palace, and he sees a woman bathing, and he likes what he sees. And he goes, he sends somebody to find out who she is. He learns that she is Bathsheba, uh, the wife of Uriah. Uriah is one of David's men, and Uriah is off at battle. So Bathsheba is home alone. David sends for her, he sleeps with her, she returns to her own house, and David thinks that's the end of the story. Until Bathsheba sends word to David that she is pregnant. So David has to hatch a plan, and he does. He decides to send for Uriah to come home from the battle lines and to spend time with Bathsheba so that everybody, Uriah included, will think that that baby belongs to Uriah and not David. But what David didn't really count on was that Uriah was a really honorable man. And so when he came back from the battle lines, he wouldn't go home to his wife. He decided because his men were still out in the battlefield sleeping in fields, that it wouldn't be fair for him to go to the comforts of his own home. So that night, he actually slept in the doorway of David's palace, along with David's servants. The following night, David thought, I'm on it. He tried to ply Uriah with drink. Go home, Uriah. Go and see your wife. He wouldn't do it. So the next day, David had to think again. He sent Uriah back to battle with a note for the commander, which was effectively Uriah's death warrant. And it said to put Uriah in the fiercest fighting uh, with no backup and to let David know when he was killed. So Uriah was killed in battle. And then David was able to take Bathsheba as his wife, and they had a baby boy. David got away with it. Until we see in 2 Samuel 11, at the very end of that chapter, verse 27, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. 
One year later, enter stage left Nathan the prophet. And Nathan was sent by God to go and speak with David. And Nathan uses a story, a parable, about a rich man and a poor man. And the rich man has many flock and herds, lots of everything. And the poor man has very little, and he has one precious lamb. The rich man has a visitor and needs to feed him. And instead of pulling one of his many flock, he takes the poor man's one little lamb. David, on hearing this story, is enraged. And he says, that man deserves to die. The eye contact, that sinking feeling in the stomach. Because Nathan comes in then with, you are the man. Boom. David's been found out. And that's where we start Psalm 51 this morning. And while I've said it's a psalm of repentance, and there's lots that we could say around the subject of repentance, there were three things that I wanted to share with you this morning. And they're all around what David knows. So David knows he has a merciful God. David also knows that he himself has fallen. And David knows that reconciliation is possible going forward. So David and this merciful God that he knows, if we can look at verses 1 and 2, David is asking for forgiveness, for mercy. Let's look at what he's asking for. Have mercy on me. Goes on, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity. This is strong language. David is looking for his transgressions to be blotted out and his iniquities washed away. And perhaps we can imagine uh, what washing dirty garments was like in David's time. And it was a lot more complicated than me selecting the right cycle on my washing machine. There was a real physical effort of scrubbing uh, those clothes, those garments. And that seems to be what David is asking for. The word that's used for mercy here means to stoop low in kindness to an inferior. He needs to be cleaned up and he knows that he's not worthy of God's mercy. He's just broken at least five of the commandments. Uh, in one series of events. And he's also asking, this great king of Israel is asking for God to stoop low to him. He knows that he's an inferior. And we find him pleading with God. Why is he pleading for mercy? Is it because he's earned it? Is it because he's really, really sorry? Is it because he's promising that he'll never do it again? It's because of who God is. I don't know how many of us have ever tried to bargain with God. When I was a child, uh, my prayers would sound something like, uh, Dear God, if you give me a bike, I promise I'll do ABC. Or, Dear God, if you stop this happening, I promise I'll read my Bible more. Bargaining. And I would like to think that my prayer life has really matured since then. But I actually think I'm probably just better at hiding my true motivations from myself in prayer. But bargaining, when we try and ask God for things or forgiveness based on what we'll do better or how much harder we'll try or how really, really sorry we are, it's not how God does things. And David, unlike me, knows that. He knew that. David is asking for mercy because of who God is. Let's look again at verse 1. According to your unfailing love, your great compassion. David knows that God loves him unconditionally. 
Despite this web of lies and deceit that David has spun, David knows that God still loves him and will have compassion on him. He remembers who God is. And I wonder, when things go badly for us, when we stumble and when we trip, how do we remember who God is? How are we reminding ourselves who God is? Perhaps we can think this morning, how do we do that? Do we spend time? Do we soak ourselves in his word? Do we spend time in his presence? Do we encourage one another with the stories of love and compassion that we've seen in our lives from God? We don't know what David's specific spiritual disciplines were every day, but we know that he was a man after God's own heart. He had a living relationship with God. And so even in this pit of sin and brokenness that David finds himself in, he knows that he is loved by God and he's then able to turn back to God. David also knows that he's fallen. And we're looking here at verses three to six. We see a list almost of David's brokenness. He's using words like transgression, sin, evil. He knows he's in the wrong. And the thing that really struck me about David's words is that he doesn't try and blame anyone or anything else. Have we ever heard of being hangry? When we blame our poor decisions or our anger or our bad behavior on being hungry. Once uh, just the thing of toddlers. It's now all the rage with us adults too now, and it lets us get away with all sorts of things. And David has none of this, uh, I notice in this psalm. No excuses are offered. He admits it all. And I love how the message puts it, verse 4, I have been out of step with you. David knows in a way that this has been coming for quite some time. He's been walking out of step for quite some time. And if I take you back further in 2 Samuel, back to chapter 5, I'll just read it for you. So back to chapter 5 and verse 12, David knows that God's hand is on him. I'll just read it. David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. But then if we move on to look at his private life in verse 13, David took more concubines and wives in Jerusalem and more sons and daughters were born to him. And that's a direct contradiction to the commandments that were given for the king of Israel back in the book of Deuteronomy. David was walking out of step. We also see at the start of 2 Samuel 11 that David wasn't where he was meant to be. We see him placed on the roof of his palace uh, and it says, in the spring, at that time, when kings go off to war. And yet David stayed in Jerusalem. He stayed at home. He sent his men out to battle, but he stayed at home. Why? Because he was out of step with God. Because he was drifting in perhaps very subtle ways. And this is such a sober warning for us this morning. That it was perhaps David's success and his security that left him in such a vulnerable, vulnerable position. 
So we see David as this powerful king. He's not scrabbling around trying to find somebody to blame. He's not blaming Bathsheba. He's not blaming the stresses of the job, being king. He's not even blaming being hangry. He admits it all. He sees his brokenness for what it is. He knew that his sin was a disgrace on earth and an insult to heaven. He knows that not only has his sin affected the players of this story and his people, but also God. In verses 5 and 6, he speaks about being sinful since birth. And this isn't David saying, oh, can't help it, I'm only human. It's not, it's not really my fault, it's because I'm human. He's acknowledging that sin is nature as well as act. So he's looking for forgiveness of his sinful nature. He realizes that unless he has changed from the heart, from the inside out, then his nature is fallen. And I wonder as we pray this morning for forgiveness, how many of us see the true picture like David? Or are we always trying to blame the other like the hangry person? Do we see that it's not just our acts that need to be forgiven and dealt with, but that it's our very nature? We are fallen people and we can be trapped in a cycle unless we ask the Holy Spirit to change us from the inside out. That leads us on to the last point about restoration. David knows going forward that restoration is possible. In one of his other Psalms, Psalm 103, uh, in verse 10 there, David writes that God does not treat us as our sins deserve. David here has committed two offenses uh, that were punishable by death, the adultery and the murder. And looking at verses 7 and 8, we can see um, that David um, sees hope going ahead. Cleanse me, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. He even speaks about uh, letting me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you've crushed rejoice. He knows going forward that restoration is possible. David has been brought low by this. He's even spoken of his bones being crushed. And perhaps he'd be tempted to think that he's a write-off, that he had burnt his bridges and that he'll never be trusted again. But that's not what David thinks. And maybe that's something that we need to be reminded of this morning, that some of our yesterdays maybe need to be forgotten. And some of our tomorrows need to be given to God without worry. If our lives were like art galleries, I'm sure some would be more impressive galleries than others, but if they were like an art gallery, there might be some corridors of our lives uh, from our past that we wouldn't want to go down. They might remind us of times um, when we've burnt our bridges, when we've been deemed a write-off, and when we thought that people would never trust us again. But David knew that that wasn't right, and God still tells us today that that's not right. Hebrews 13 speaks about Jesus being the same yesterday, today, and forever. His love doesn't change, and he always wants us to come to him. If we're struggling to accept that reconciliation is possible, then perhaps it's time to invite Jesus into our past to help us with some of those memories that are just unhelpful. They defeated us then, and perhaps they continue to defeat us now. 
They're hindering us from the living the full life that God has planned for us. But perhaps it's the future that you're not so sure about. In verse 13 onwards, David, we see him longing to be used by God again, to be where God wants him to be and to be walking in step with God again. And the thing that struck me about this is that David knows that this is entirely possible despite all that he's done. Lent um, can be a time that's full of resolutions, of promises that we make to ourselves and to God. And many of these can be very self-focused. They can bring us inward. Eat more of this, drink less of that, less screen time, etc. Mine is woefully self-focused in that I'm meant to be trying to drink more water. It's not going very well. But Lent should really be about the Spirit's work in us. It should really be about lifting our eyes from us to Christ. I read something this week by the poet and priest uh, Malcolm Gait that I'd like to just finish with this morning. As an aside, uh, Malcolm Gait is a name I've always struggled with pronouncing. I've never been entirely confident with his surname. Uh, and this week, I asked a few friends, how do you pronounce that name? And I got varying responses. So I took to Twitter, which uh, I'm on Twitter. I don't really use Twitter. But this week, I took to Twitter to find out how to say Malcolm Gait's name properly. And I basically said, is it Malcolm Gait, as in kite, or as in gate? And Malcolm Gait himself replied to me <laughs> and said it was Malcolm Gait, as in kite. So uh, I replied to Malcolm Gait with a little emoji of a kite and a thumbs up. <laughs> so I don't know if anyone's ever tweeted Malcolm Gait with emojis, but I'll take that as a first ever. So I'm just going to finish with a quote uh, from Malcolm Gait that I know um, he is known and loved by many of you. If Jesus were simply set before me as an example of heroic human achievement, I would despair. He's not only my exemplar, he is my savior. He is the one who takes my place and stands in for me. And in the mystery of redemption, he acts for me and makes up in his resistance to evil what's lacking in mine. And maybe like me this morning, you feel lacking. Maybe you feel like you have nothing to bring. Well, we see here that David brought a broken spirit and he asked God to do the rest. This Psalm 51 is all about repentance. And true repentance leads us to a life-changing encounter with a living God that enables us to go forward with hope and reconciliation. Let me pray for us.